It's September 4th, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Iris Tarashima and Carl Kim, both from the Natural Disaster Preparedness Training Center. And they're here to tell us about the upcoming Natural Disaster Awareness for Community Leaders Workshop. Finally, we will learn how the Energy Accelerator is helping companies get started, and we'll hear from some of the companies that went through the program. We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation, so please be ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. The Hawaii media landscape shifted again this morning with the launch of Huffington Post Hawaii, the new partnership between Ariana Huffington's online empire and Pierre Omidyar's Civil Beat is expected to broaden the global audience for Hawaii-related content. First announced in May, Huffington said that the new site will tell the stories on both sides of the screen, feeding outside interests in Hawaii as a tourist destination, as well as focusing on issues affecting the people who live here. Civil Beat, launched three years ago, will continue to run as a standalone site focused on civic affairs journalism. With a lighter mix of features, blogs, and lists, it's hoped Huffington Post Hawaii will draw a portion of its parent site's 45 million monthly visitors. Huffington is currently touring Hawaii as part of the launch. Last night, she participated in a discussion of the state of the media with Omidyar, and that was moderated by HBR's own Beth Ann Kozlovich. Topics for the evening range from disruptive technologies to the role of social media. Shiano Omidyar said that Hawaii has a lot to offer the rest of the world, and Huffington compared her vision for Huffington Post Hawaii to her third metric initiative, which seeks to redefine success beyond the usual measures of money and power. In an introductory article posted this morning, she wrote, Hawaii's aloha spirit, which has made Hawaii such an oasis of unplugging and recharging, is after all the essence of the third metric, encapsulating well-being and our ability to wonder and give back. And it was a, you know, it was a pretty um, interesting event yesterday. I mean, it was a kind of a panel that uh, Beth Ann and uh, um, you had Pierre Omidyar and Ariana Huffington talk a little bit about uh, what they had in mind for, you know, Huffington Post Hawaii and. I, Beth Ann, I think, was very good about um, trying to understand what picture are they planning to portray about Hawaii as a result of you know now launching this sort of new megaphone, right? Right, right. And um, Ariana is still on tour, of course. She was on the conversation this morning. She had a luncheon at HPU or for HPU today. Mm-hmm. I think she's going to be on the Big Island tomorrow. And uh, you know, again, it's a bigger audience. I was looking at the front page, and of course, there's some content from the Huffington Post broader network, so you might have, you know, uh, George Clooney's ex in a bikini and stuff like that, but there is a significant focus on Hawaii, and I would say, you know, it is fair to say uh, more thoughtful and perhaps more positive um, articles on the Hawaii side. There's an article on Kanu Hawaii, an interview with Olin Lagan, for example, mm-hmm. and I'm looking and I, now I see like 85 comments, 45 comments, 33 comments, um, not the much higher level of engagement that I think that most local news sites and blogs see, so I think that's basically what they were hoping to get mm-hmm. with this launch. Well, and I think, uh, you know, time will tell how they portray uh, Hawaii. And of course, as uh, uh, sort of media wonks, we'll definitely be kind of on top of it. Absolutely. And they got, you know, there's, there is the, the blogs, people who blog for free. They had, a, had one from Oprah talking about Hawaii, uh, Senator Brian Schatz as well. But they've even got like HBU students, um, what's uh, Kyle Data from Ulupono Initiative blogging as well. So it's a pretty big cross-section mm-hmm. of voices. 
Coastal erosion is a major concern among Hawaii residents, prompting multi-million dollar sand replenishment projects at beachfront hotels and prompting homeowners to erect defensive seawalls, which often makes things worse. But a new study out of the University of Hawaii has concluded that global sea level rise is a major cause of coastal erosion. And they also found a significant difference in the erosion found on Maui compared to Oahu. Researchers from the UH School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology and the State Department of Land and Natural Resources examined the historical record via survey charts and aerial photographs, as well as other factors that influence shoreline change. But while waves, the supply of sand, and human activities may dramatically affect individual beaches, rising ocean levels were found to be the primary driver of shoreline change on a regional uh, to island-wide basis. The study also found that 78% of the beaches on Maui saw erosion over the last 100 years, compared to 52% of beaches on Oahu. And while Oahu lost an average of 3 centimeters of shoreline each year, Maui lost 13 centimeters. DLNR spokesman Sam Lemo said in a statement, The research provides us with an opportunity to anticipate sea level rise effects on coastal areas, including Hawaii's world-famous beaches, coastal communities, and infrastructure. We hope this information will inform long-range planning decisions. Now, the interesting thing about uh, this study is that, you know, if you look at the amount of uh, sea level rise, which is measured in millimeters, and the effect of that rise on the actual erosion, that's where they find that it's like tenfold difference, magnitude, an order of magnitude difference, because you have 10 centimeters worth of of erosion versus the one millimeter rise in, in sea level. Right, right. And the, so, you know, it's kind of interesting that uh, this dramatic effect happening with just, uh, you know, small changes in yeah. sea level. Two millimeters a year over the last century, maybe up to three millimeters a year now. They're saying that's accelerating, but even that's enough, uh, at least according to one of the researchers, I think it was on Hawaii News Now, saying that's 100 feet in potentially, you know, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in terms of where you put your hotels or, in fact, where the beach is or where the water line is, this could change very dramatically. In Mm -hmm. Waikiki, for example, Mapunapuna will probably be like, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, a, under, a, a water city where you need to travel everything with, with a canoe or something. Oh, like Venice. Like Venice. Oh, that sounds... was the city I was trying to think of. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Now, the other thing that was interesting in this study was that they found that Maui had more erosion than Oahu, and that had something to do with its proximity to the Big Island and the fact that the Big Island is actually kind of sinking yeah, on itself. Yeah, it's weighing down the, the, the crust. Right, so... and, and it's sort of bringing Maui down with it. Right. So that, that's, that's also interesting. Yeah that that's an impact for sure. Well, next up, from shorelines to deep sea, another UH study documents the results of 34 submersible dives to visit submarine canyons across the Hawaiian archipelago from the main Hawaiian islands to the northwestern Hawaiian islands. The study found that these submarine canyons, some up to 5,000 feet deep, can serve as underwater oases for species, making um, a significant source of diversity and abundance of marine life. The meticulous survey involved collecting sediment core samples at depths of 1,100, 2,000, and 3,200 feet, and then carefully sorting through them to find tiny organisms like worms, clams, and shrimp-like crustaceans, some just a millimeter in size. The scientists then correlated those species with the underwater landscape, finding that submarine canyons can promote high species diversity by channeling ocean currents, capturing sinking particles, and funneling migrating animals. Well, the study expands upon previous research that discovered the high species diversity of fish and large invertebrates known as megafauna. The research team says that this thorough survey is the first of its kind. 
Lead author Fabio Di Leo said in a statement, Canyons may be particularly important in the Hawaiian Islands, in part because they supply organic matter to the typically food-limited deep sea. Uh, when there's food, there's life. And what's interesting is that, you know, I've always thought that Hawaii, comparatively to, let's say, the, the coastline uh, um, along the, the California coast, was Hawaii was more sort of desolate in terms of its um, uh, diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, I, I was um, trying to get some insight into this, this story. And it turns out that, granted, you know, we are in a very different sort of uh, ocean geography but it's in these canyons that you know there is there's this diversity of of marine life. But the diversity is some of this sort of microscopic and right, small, right. and and the ones that they've studied in this uh, report were you know like millimeter long worms and clams and you know shrimp. Yeah, and even so, they found four new species in just this survey. You know, three new types of crustaceans. They're saying that at the sixty percent of what they were collecting and sorting through, they only know at the family level. They haven't. They're not even sure mm-hmm. what the actual species is. But yeah, they look at six different canyons, and when they're near the islands, they are collecting things like branches, leaves, nuts, and algae, mm-hmm, things that mm-hmm. are coming off the islands. And I can certainly see that that can sustain uh, a whole ecosystem of, of interesting organisms. The Hawaiian Electric Company on Friday issued a new request for proposals in its search to find up to 150,000 barrels of cleaner fuel for its power generation facilities on Maui and Hawaii Island. The three-year contract term would begin in 2015. The company notes that it is part of a broader effort to reduce Hawaii's dependence on fossil fuels by generating more energy from renewable sources like biofuels, as well as solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal power. The request is open to biodiesel suppliers both within and outside the islands and includes biodiesel and biodiesel blends like B20, a mix of 20% biodiesel with 80% petroleum diesel. B20 already powers all diesel vehicles in the Hawaiian electric fleet. The company notes that its power-generating station in Campbell Industrial Park is already using 100% renewable biodiesel, um, uh, as well the emergency generator facility being built uh, at the Honolulu International Airport. Earlier this week, Hawaiian Electric announced that it plans to shut down its power plant near downtown Honolulu at the end of January of 2014. Then the company credits the deactivation of that downtown plant, along with other facilities on Maui and Hawaii Island, to the increased availability of renewable energy. HECO VP of Power Supply Ron Cox said in a statement, This is thanks to the lower use of electricity and tremendous growth in renewable energy. This will help us use less oil and lower customers' electric bills. Now, we've been you know, following sort of the, uh, I guess, the migration away from petroleum-based products and more to- towards these bio- uh, biodiesel products. Products and the thing that's interesting in this quote is that uh, the lower customer electric bills may not really be immediately achieved because they're thinking long term. Long term, right? Because biodiesel and all these biofuels are still going to be a little bit more expensive. Right. Than well, petroleum. we we'd been covering the Ainakoa Pono project on the mm-hmm. Big Island. They they made a deal with Hawaiian Electric, but the PUC rejected that three hundred fifty million dollar deal. They're working on now getting a new proposal through, but that does involve a surcharge to cover the difference between the cost of petroleum and biofuels, like $1.25 a month for Oahu residents. But again, you know, being more independent and such, that's the price.
price for that for sure. The company says they're trying to deactivate uh, 226 megawatts of uh, utility-owned generation by 2016. Mm-hmm. They actually think they're going to beat their goal of 15% clean energy by 2015. Well, I, I think overall, I mean, it's a good uh, move in the right direction. It's just now a question of whether or not we can produce enough biofuels to make it economically feasible. Right. Well, finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. Last week, Hawaiian Airlines announced that it would be enhancing its in-flight entertainment options by making iPad minis available to passengers starting this week. Travelers on 14 routes between Hawaii, the mainland, Asia, and South Pacific will be able to rent an iPad for $15 in advance or $17 while in flight. The devices will have over 100 hours of recent movie releases, many uh, ahead of the DVD release, as well as other entertainment applications. And high school computer and technology teachers and their students are invited to participate in the Hawaii Cyber Scrimmage that's set for Saturday, September 21st. The Information Security and Cyber Defense Challenge is being organized by the Cyber Hui in conjunction with the State Department of Education and the Cyber Patriot Program. The deadline to register for that is Monday, September 16th. So if you're interested or you know a teacher who might be, you can send them to cyberhui.org. Org. And now joining us here in the studio is Iris uh, Terashima from I Terashima and mm. Carl Kim from the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. And they're here to talk about an upcoming workshop called the Natural Disaster Awareness for Community Leaders. Welcome to the show, Iris and Carl. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, Carl, uh, you know, I've been involved with uh, teaching the social media class for NDPDC, and, and uh, there's a, a whole slew of courses that NDPDC puts on. And this is a this is a new course and that's what kind of attracted my attention to it. But um, you know, give give our listeners a little sort of sampling of what other kind of courses are being taught by NDPDC. Well we started uh, by developing for FEMA the first courses on uh, uh, hazards such as tsunamis mm-hmm. and we have a volcano course. Uh, we have a coastal flooding class. Uh, we have a course on um, hurricane preparedness uh, as well too. And then we've also focused on key uh, groups uh, such as uh, senior caregivers, uh, community leaders, uh, security professionals. Uh, and then we have a series of tools-based courses, um, uh, a course that uh, emphasizes uh, GIS applications, mm-hmm. the social media class, which you're familiar with. We've also developed a course uh, on disaster communications, uh, another one on rapid damage assessment. And so uh, we've been in existence uh, almost five years now, and so... Uh, we've uh, built up a large number of training courses that we're offering uh, to state and local governments, to uh, the public, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, different uh, groups involved in uh, disaster preparedness, uh, response, uh, and recovery. Well, the, you know, the beauty of this uh, class, this offering that NDPDC does, is that it's it's basically free to the people that you're you're giving it to. So many of these are, let's say, you know, governmental or, or first responders or people in sort of the uh, sort of emergency management the business, whether it's fire or or police, you know, uh, of that nature. And I think it's a it's a very interesting you know offering that is being made available. And I think NDPDC, what's interesting is that it's a it's kind of focused on natural disasters, right? Yes, we're part of the uh, National Domestic Preparedness Consortium, that includes six other uh, universities and entities, including. Uh, schools such as Texas A&M mm-hmm. and LSU, uh, New Mexico Tech. Uh, and it also includes the Center for Domestic Preparedness in Anniston, Alabama, the Transportation Technology Center in Pueblo, Colorado. Mm-hmm. These other centers are focused on terrorism and weaponry, 
our center is focused on natural hazards on coastal communities uh, and islands and uh, territories. Now, of course, that being very timely, since September is National Preparedness Month, Iris uh, from Aitarashima, I, I see what you've done there. Uh, <laughs> tell, us, tell us a little bit about this course specifically. I mean, how, how, what was your draw, your connection into putting it all together? Well, this is a very exciting course, and we're really happy that it is a newly FEMA-certified course. Um, we've been getting a lot of interest, uh, not just here in Hawaii, but throughout the U.S. Um, what drew me to this course, of course, is, you know, we live on an island, like uh, Carl said, and we... Uh, uh, know from our experiences here that it's more than just being um, resilient as an individual. It's one thing for ourselves as individuals to be prepared, but really we we live in communities. And so it's very important for us as members of the, those communities to make sure that our communities are resilient. So this course focuses on just that. How do we uh, improve uh, com- community disaster preparedness. Um, specifically, how do we work together as communities to pool our resources to reduce risk um, and help ourselves out um, so that ultimately, um, you know, we are resilient as a community. So could you give us a flavor of how that is uh, that is to be accomplished by the community? Okay. What, what some are some of the elements in that course? Well, first and foremost, you know, as communities, we really need to identify what are the natural hazards and disasters that we want to focus on. What are those uh, natural disasters, let's say, uh, that we want to make sure that we're prepared for? So that's part of big part of the course is that information and education. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of it is also to know who are your vulnerable groups in your communities. For example, uh, elders, uh, the very young, maybe special needs population, Populations. And then, of course, once you do that, now you're looking at what are the resources that are available, what kind of partnerships can you form, ultimately what what are the community's resources so that they as a community can prepare. So, for example, if you know as a community you have environmental vulnerabilities, let's say you have commu- uh, you know water drainage issues, you're next to some kind of a canal or a stream, you know, what kind of uh, preparations can you do in advance of that? If you have an elderly, uh, you know, population that's isolated, Isolated or maybe has some language barriers. How do you make sure that they get the information that they need? Um, so it's it's common sense, but really it's bringing people together as a community and, and working through the process. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, one of the programs that uh, Bert and I have gone through, for example, is the CERT program, which mm-hmm. is basically how to make yourself useful and not a problem <laughs> in your community when something goes wrong. It's not like you get a badge or any authority, but it's just well, you, you do know, get a vest. The, uh, you get a nice vest. That's right. Right. Um, but you know, how do you you take that leadership role when people need that kind of direction? This is this course is for community leaders. How broad is that definition? What would you define as a community leader? Well, I think we're trying to target not just businesses and uh, religious uh, groups, uh, but also civic groups and uh, neighborhood organizations and. Uh, other uh, uh, groups that uh, are involved not just in uh, disaster preparedness and uh, uh, recovery after a, an event, but who are engaged in building communities and strengthening communities. So um, I'm, I'm curious. Well, give us a, um, give us the details as as to where, when uh, the course is. Well, being we do have two courses coming up mm-hmm. um, next week uh, on September 12th. We are at the University of Hawaii. That course is full. Oh, it is. It is oh. full. Uh, we have had huge uh, public um, response to the course, but mm-hmm. there is o- there are openings. I should say the second course is on September 13th, and that's at the Japanese Chamber of Commerce. There are spots available, so if people are interested by all means, please contact uh, NDPTC. Um, you can reach them. I think the best way is probably by phone. Or uh, isn't it? Uh, well, 
Give us the URL. Uh, you can go to ndptc.hawaii.edu, and there is a Contact Us button that you can click on, and we'll respond to you either via email or you can call us at 956-0600. All right. Sounds good. So sign up. Thanks, uh, Iris and Carl, for joining us. Thank Great you. to be here. Thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Don Lippert from Pictor, Michael Pfeffer from IBIS Networks, and Leo Cariz from GenLab to talk about Energy Accelerator. What was accomplished by participating in this accelerator, and what are the next steps for each of these companies? We'd, of course, love your questions as well as part of the conversation, so give us a call at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. On the next Radio Lab. Colors. When two people look at a rainbow... Do you see some of the pink and the blue? Do they see the same thing? I see a lot of pink. Like, do you see that? No. All the Greeks were colorblind. All of them were colorblind? Yes. They saw the world in black and white, maybe with a touch of red. Join us for Radiolab. Saturday morning at 10. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Robin Posen, author of Go Only As Fast As Your Slowest Part Feels Safe To Go. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about being gentle with our exhausted selves. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Mars Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Don Lippert, uh, Michael Pfeffer, and Leo Cariz. And uh, Don is with is a senior manager over at Pictor for the Energy Program and, and heads up the Energy Accelerator Program. Michael is the CEO of IBIS Networks, a company that's developing an intelligent electric Socket. Me, Leo, meanwhile, is co-founder of Gen X Energy Developments, responsible for developing and maintaining large wind, solar, and microhydro projects throughout Hawaii and the Pacific Basin. And what is the Energy Accelerator's focus, and why would it be beneficial to participate in it? And we've, of course, we've uh, we'd love to have your comments and questions too. And of course, that number to call is nine four one three six eight nine on Oahu, or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands and. Michael, Leo, and Don, we want to welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, Pleasure. Thank now, you. Well, uh, so, so um, just so uh, you all know that Don and Michael are here in the studio, and Leo is calling in from Maui, so we'll kind of uh, juggle all the, the callers as we move along in the, in the show. But I wanted to start off with, uh, with Don, because, Don, we've had you on a couple of times uh, talking about the Energy Accelerator and, and uh, announcing the... the um, second sort of cohort or application for the next uh, cohort. But we wanted to get a chance to have some of the companies that were part of the program have a chance to say a few words about, you know, what their experience was like. But I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the program and and what you're looking for in terms of these uh, energy startups and perhaps how are things going with this sort of second cohort. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me back. And I'm so glad to be joined by a couple of our first cohort because 
they really know what it's like to be a company in the energy accelerator and to be growing a company in the energy innovation space mm-hmm. right now, which is a really exciting time. Um, so in general, we opened applications and they close in another three and a half weeks. So we're open until September 27th for our next round of applications. We have seen so far some phenomenal companies. Uh, we're already uh, way above where we were last year for applications and we're not even three weeks away from the, and we still have three weeks till the deadline. So uh, we're looking specifically at technologies in a couple of different topic areas. Mm-hmm. One area we're really interested in right now is grid integration. So we're looking at how do you bring more solar and wind onto the grid efficiently and in a way that utility operators can continue to manage the grid well. We have so much solar and wind and renewable energy resources in Hawaii, but we don't necessarily have an easy way to integrate all of them, especially these variable energy resources. So we're really interested in demand response, energy storage, all kinds of smart grid technologies that can help us better integrate and manage our grids. Mm-hmm. How did how did you decide that this sort of grid integration, which I, I, I think obviously makes sense, but was there something that was uh, uh, revealing about the direction of smart grids that that led you down the path of let's you know let's see if we can get companies that are doing work in this area. Definitely. So we actually work really closely with the utilities and with all of the end users mm-hmm. in Hawaii to understand what their main challenges are around energy use and management. And so this is one that we've heard again and again. If you look at, for example, some of the circuits on South Maui, they have very, very high levels of solar, higher than anywhere else in the country. Um, Same thing with Oahu and also um, areas of Kona and the Big Island. So we've grown from about 5 megawatts of solar in 2007 to over 210 to 220 today. So this is an amazing amount of growth in five or six years. Mm -hmm. And integrating that has been a challenge for the utility. So anywhere there's a pain point for a customer, we see that that's an opportunity for innovation. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael, you're no stranger to startups and the venture community and uh, um, having your own role in a company right now specifically focused on smart sockets. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your background, but more importantly, what drew you to the Energy Accelerator um, versus perhaps some of the other accelerator programs that we've talked about that are here in Honolulu that we've even featured on this show? Uh, Great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. uh, as you say, I've been a venture capitalist, been an investor here since 1998, uh, had invested in the parent company uh, from IBIS Networks, Oceanit, which is an R&D firm here. And I became very attracted with the idea of taking some of their technologies and spinning them out and making them commercially viable. And uh, actually, in late January, uh, we sat down and looked at their basket of stuff and the IntelliSocket, the smart socket that they had, uh, leapt out at me as this amazing opportunity to help with energy efficiency, something I've been very interested in and had invested in in Hawaii. And fortuitously, uh, we were invited to uh, apply for the Energy Accelerator. And three days later, uh, I was CEO of a brand new company <laughs> and participating in this this accelerator program. I had never done an accelerator, and I have to say it was truly a an amazing experience and a way to really jumpstart a company that um, I, I don't think we'd be anywhere near where we are without the accelerator today. No, that's great. And I, I want to get into a little bit more detail as to what exactly you mean by jumpstart because that's kind of the secret sauce of what this accelerator program I- is all about. But I want to give uh, Leo a chance to tell us a little bit about uh, Gen X Energy Developments and what you guys are doing on Maui and, and how you guys uh, got started and, and what your interest in, in this uh, energy accelerator was. Sure. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me on. Um, Gen X Energy Development um, primary activities have uh, 
been developing large-scale solar projects, uh, distributed, distributed wind projects for commercial and utility ap- applications, and, and um, looking at uh, expanding into the microhydro uh, sectors as well. Mm. Um, you know, we are a development firm in Hawaii. We've developed projects um, on Maui, on the Big Island, and we are have projects under development on the West Coast as well. For, for our experience, going into the Energy Accelerator was we, we uh, came up with a technology that came out of the Hawaii Renewable Energy Development Venture. And... Um, that program helped us get our first prototype up and running on the Big Island, and the Energy Accelerator was an opportunity for us to have great access to a, a broader network of, of, of funding uh, individuals, companies, um, to network. Um, the Energy Accelerator also provided us an opportunity to um, revise and understand where we really want to go with our technology and, and give us the, the chance to get in front of the people who um, would be interested in investing in us. And so um, the Energy Accelerator has just provided a, a tremendous opportunity for us to continue to move our technology forward into the marketplace. Um, Leo, can you tell us a little bit about what that technology was that uh, kind of got it uh, got it all started? Sure. Um, so, you know, when we were, uh, we've been developing our, our renewable energy portfolio and you know, when we um, entered into some situations that um, there was great challenges, for instance, Don just mentioned about, you know, when there's these uh, pockets of need. Well, we found a need in a situation on the Big Island. Um, we had a, a agricultural farmer who had a, a large uh, parcel of land, but he was relatively remote. And where the energy was needed, there was no um, uh, utility uh, grid to, to service him. Mm. So we... we explored what are some um, some technology options that we we could come up with and you know there was really you know nothing that you know shot out at that time so we came up with a um, renewable energy microgrid which is a standalone renewable energy uh, grid that uh, can integrate solar or wind energy um, we create a grid that's composed comprised of uh, some battery uh, uh, some inverters um, a, uh, a proprietary software control platform uh, and some variable frequency drives. Um, we couple that mm-hmm. with a um, submersible water well pump. And what happens is the entire microgrid operates uh, autonomously and it balances the renewable energy with the, uh, the, the, the load from the pump. So um, this arrangement provides for a really efficient uh, operation and we can provide power and uh, deliver water for this farmer. So the project uh, was really came out of that situation. We needed something. Um, there was no grid. There was no uh, water infrastructure. So we had to come up with our own water well, our own grid, and uh, and use uh, entirely renewables. And we really wanted to eliminate the need for any fossil fuels on the project. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that. I mean, and, and I love that it was an application for an actual situation, you know, finding a solution to something that's happening in the real world. We're talking to Don Lippert, Michael Pfeffer, and Leo Kairas about the Energy Accelerator, a program of the Pacific International Center for High Tech Research. They've completed one cohort. They're looking for applications for their second. If you've got an idea or a question for this group, you can give us a call at 941-3689, or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands like Maui at 877-941-3689. Now, Don, not to put you on the spot, since, of course, you have a couple of participants on the air right now, but how would you characterize the the 
the nature of that for first cohort? Did a sudden and clear theme or convergence of of uh, specific energies or topics come out of it? I mean, something that that you thought really characterized what this first uh, group was like? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think in general, we look for a pretty diverse cohort, and we don't want any technologies that are directly competitive with each other. And we want companies that are actually going to work together and help each other. So we've seen a, a lot of synergy between the different companies in the cohort. And I should also mention that I mean, one of the things we really look for, and, and you mentioned sort of this customer pull, that's one of the top things that we look for out of companies. We want to see across our cohort companies that are addressing problems that we have. And that's one thing that makes the Energy Accelerator really unique in the world of accelerators. It's basically a place-based accelerator. So we're looking for solutions for challenges that Hawaii sees across the board. So it may be in transportation, it may be in grid integration, bioenergy, maybe energy efficiency, maybe agriculture. But we're actually looking for solutions that solve problems in this place, which is really – so we're, we, we want individual companies that are really strong, great management teams, but we're specifically looking to solve problems. So if you really think about what that means, it's a kind of a holistic look at bringing innovation into a community to solve problems. Now, you said the place-based and I think that's great, especially if we're all living in Hawaii and it's you know place-based solutions for Hawaii. But uh, does that also translate to expandability and scalability across other places? Well, it has to. So for companies to really succeed, they have to expand to other places. And, and I kind of think of it like a pyramid. Mm-hmm. So Hawaii may have these ideal economic conditions for rolling out companies like one – um, like Gen X on a renewable microgrid, or like IBIS Networks has these very quick payback times in, in Telesaurus because of our energy prices. Um, but very quickly, as you move down this pyramid, you start to see markets like California, Alaska, Japan, uh, other island nations, sure, Asia sure. Pacific, and then you can continue moving down the pyramid into other markets. All right. Well, I'm I'm curious uh, about you know where uh, these companies were when they came into the accelerator, and in fact, you know if they were turned out to be more prepared or maybe less prepared than they thought they were after going through the program. Um, Leo told us a little bit about the specifics of the application of his technology. Um, Michael, I want to hear a little bit more about these uh, sockets and you know essentially the stage. Are how far are we from being able to pick one up at the Best Buy? Um, well, actually, you, you could pick one up at the Best Buy, but it wouldn't be ours. I see. Um, our solution, essentially what you have is in, in today's business environment, up to 50% of the energy consumed comes out of your wall socket, stuff you plug into the wall. Today, we have no way to measure that or control it. And what these sockets do, what our IntelliSocket platform does, is it's a retrofit solution. It's very cheap, very easy. You take a 1,000 sockets, you plug them into every socket in your office space, you plug all of your devices in, they form a mesh network, a secure mesh network, and they start measuring energy consumption for every device, your copiers, printers, water coolers, coffee makers, whatever. And then we can start to look at that and say, okay, this is the energy consumption profile for all these devices. These are the devices that are mission critical. These ones you can turn off at night. These ones you can turn off during these hours. And we can set up a, a program to turn things off. It's a, it's a simple concept that's hard to do. If you have to walk around and turn a thousand things off, it's never going to happen. If you can do it with the flick of a switch on your on your iPad, uh, you can actually start to save a lot of energy. So there are a lot of home solutions out there, uh, like you say at Best Buy or the Apple Store, where you can buy five or ten smart sockets, and and uh, that's great. Um, our focus is really on industrial scale. 
um, enterprise level deployments of 500, 1,000 or more uh, sockets on a network. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you, you mentioned a mesh network. So built into the socket is the capability of it creating sort of this, this uh, means by which it can communicate to each other? Correct. So every socket has a what we call a Zigbee antenna, which is a, a protocol. It's a standard protocol for a wireless mesh network system. Every socket finds another socket and builds a mesh network. So they don't have to find just one. They'll find any socket close enough to pick up their signal. They form a network and communicate back to a base station. That then punches up to a private cloud and then down to uh, your computer. Cool stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, we're talking to uh, Don Lippert uh, from Pictar, Pictar uh, Michael Pfeffer, and Leo uh, Kyris, and they're both from startups, uh, Michael from IBIS and Leo from uh, GenX uh, Energy Developments, and we're talking about uh, getting started with the Energy Accelerator here in Hawaii. And if you have a comment or question and are interested in perhaps uh, getting some details about what goes into an energy accelerator, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. And before I get back to uh, uh, both uh, Michael and, and Leo and Don, I wanted to welcome Will from Waikiki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I had a particular question and it, it doesn't necessarily hold for your, your IntelliSocket, but I thought because you folks were so into the energy system, you might be able to tell me why it is that in America we have never addressed the fusion reactor. You know, we have so many nuclear reactors all over the place, but no one ever addressed the fusion reactor. And the fusion reactor basically uh, does the opposite of a nuclear reactor, but it creates so very much power. I was just wondering if you guys would take a shot at that for me. Well, that's a that's an interesting question because uh, I think there have been many attempts at taking a shot at that. Of course, I'm not, you know, a researcher in in you know this uh, sort of nuclear uh, fusion arena. But I don't know, Don, did you have any comments about that? I know it's has anyone proposed one of those? I mean, it's, it's been something that's been you know dreamt about, but I think it's almost a near impossibility to actually develop. Yeah, we leave ones like that to Sandia National Labs and the really smart guys on the mainland. <laughs> I mean, in general, we are looking for for technologies that do have prototypes. So any technology that has a working prototype is a really good candidate for the energy accelerator. And one reason is that it actually takes a long time and quite a lot of money to get to a prototype in some of these energy technologies. So what we do is pick them up as they have a prototype and really help them get to market, which is also, you know, really difficult piece of the equation. Now, um, Michael, you were mentioning earlier that uh, there were some um, uh, sort of uh, key things as a participant in the accelerator that really helped to kickstart and get you to the next level. And I, I kind of wanted to kind of explore what those were and, and, and sort of give uh, Don a chance to sort of wave the flag for the uh, energy accelerator because I think it's kind of a cool program. But before we jump into that, we want to have you hold that thought? We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Don Lippert, Michael Pfeffer, and Leo uh, Kyris about the Energy Accelerator. And how do you see this program or these technologies expanding beyond the islands? We'd, of course, love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe.
He's a visual artist, a fort builder, an illustrator, an art director, a graphic designer, set designer, educator, photographer, and explorer. And the Maui Arts and Cultural Center gave him 2,000 square feet to make something, and we get to talk to him. Wes Bruce, this is going to be interesting. Tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. What's a millennial? The simple thing that I hear the most is just like, they're lazy and technology addicted. And yes, part of me is like, wait, this is how I'm spending my youth, like checking Twitter on my phone. But part of me is also like, you'd be doing it too, if you were our age right now. The next greatest generation? That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Welcome back. This is Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Don Lippert, Michael Pfeffer, and Leo Kairos about creating an energy tech sector in Hawaii. And, of course, uh, what do you see as the key elements for success in creating your business here? And you can give us a call. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, we wanted to get to the question of, you know, what is the secret sauce that goes into participating in the uh, Energy Accelerator? We want to give... Everybody a chance to kind of share what they thought were some of the benefits. And then, Leo, we want to give you a chance to tell us, what is it that you kind of got um, as, a, as a sort of benefit? If you, if you hadn't gone through the accelerator, what would, it, you know, what would have happened versus having gone through the accelerator? Sure. Uh, you know, for one, you know, as uh, uh, business people, we, you know, sometimes we have a, a certain um, way of, of doing things. And, and going into the energy accelerator, I went into with a, an entirely open mind. And, you know, sometimes when you, when you go into a, a new program, you know, you, you kind of want to stick to how you want to do it. But going through the energy accelerator, it, it allowed us to really um, have access to a number of uh, different firms to give us their opinions, their recommendations on when we want to position ourselves for venture capital um, how to do that and how to make our presentations. And so the Energy Accelerator, you know, really challenges you um, as, a, as an entrepreneur. It, it, it uh, demands a lot from you, and that's what we want. I mean, you know, entrepreneurs, we want to we succeed, and uh, we, we want to be the best at what we do. And so um, the Energy Accelerator certainly provides that, that stage for you to do that. And for this program, when you went through it, I, I'm glad that you went in open to anything that might happen. But what, what perhaps did you have like an aha moment, an epiphany, like uh, that, maybe an idea from another participant that hadn't crossed your mind that expanded your view of what your technology might be able to do? Yeah, um, it, it's funny. Uh, that is what exactly happened to us. You know, we, we initially um, entered the program with our microgrid. Um, our our, our uh, product is called the SkyGrid, which is our microgrid. And we, you know, certainly dove into the program thinking it would be primarily for remote power supply systems, disaster relief for the agricultural community. And what we later discovered through the, you know, constant inter- interfacing with the um, resources from different individuals is that our technology could actually have a broader application in a potentially demand response situations where our SkyGrid could actually take a portion of the customer's or a large customer off the grid and operate. So we can actually, um, you know, island some of these uh, customers that these large utilities have to help them stabilize their grid. So we actually found a, 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 new, a new market that we can complement large utilities 
and that was very exciting for us. You know, we've already had um, visitors and, and uh, dignitaries from America, Samoa, and then next week from uh, South Korea to come in and look at our technology. So. So that was a neat thing for us. It was sort of a pivot for us as well. Oh, very good, very good. Now, Michael, I know um, you know you've been very, let's say, um, experienced with looking at startups, being an investor, having sort of the the uh, experience, you know, working with startups. And and I I like what Leo has said about you know coming into this with an open mind. And and of course. I'm, you know, not saying that I, I am judgmental of, or anything, but you know, I would s- assume that you know how to make money, you know, with some of these startups. Why would you want to go through an energy accelerator, given that you've had a lot of experience with startups and you know, investing and knowing what works and what doesn't work? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's a bit rusty. Um, when you haven't been a, an entrepreneur for for a while, uh, it, it's difficult. You know what? What really uh, was amazing for for me was. Uh, the ability to take the two guys at Oceanet who had invented and perfected the prototype and the three of us immersed ourselves in the program. And we never would have had 12, 14, 15-hour days together with a whole cohort of experts from Silicon Valley, from all over the United States and from Hawaii who know way more than I do about about all this stuff, about growing a business. I mean, some of these guys are, are amazing. And Having them give us that advice, having all the other uh, you know companies, all the other entrepreneurs, we had an immersive week where you got to spend eighteen hours a day living and breathing your idea and your and your company and getting feedback in real time over and over and over again. And we polished, we created the business plan over the course of a week, and it would have it would have taken us six weeks, eight weeks. Three months if we were doing it ourselves mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you just don't have that immersive experience. So uh, I, I really looked at it as an opportunity to say, hey, if I'm going to go in and run this thing, I want to dive deep and I want to have a bunch of smart people around me that are going to give us a ton of feedback so that we emerge in a short amount of time with a lot of, you know, a, a lot accomplished and a lot of people having looked at the idea so that we're not wasting time if there isn't a great idea there. Oh, okay, good. Now, now, Don, I know we've um, talked before with uh, with uh, Chinoa Fonsworth about the blue startups and sort of the relationship that. And I, I want to get an idea as to um, what were you able to leverage off of, let's say, the blue startup uh, folks, or was there anything that was part of their program that you incorporated into? the Energy Accelerator program, or was it pretty much kind of real separate uh, events? Well, so I think one of the reasons that we created the Energy Accelerator was that as we were working with energy companies, we realized that to take an energy technology to market, to take something that has hardware, that has technology risk, that has real need for warranties and performance across a very wide range of situations, um, you look at the microgrid, I mean, there are so many different kinds of issues around bringing a giant project like that to fruition outdoors, and there are different kinds of risks associated with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There are also other issues around regulatory um, pieces. So what do you actually do on the grid? What needs to be regulated? How do you do this? And so taking energy technology to market requires a completely different and specialized skill set compared to other technologies that Mm -hmm. are sort of software, web, mobile, gaming. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's really a different game. But we think it's incredibly important because these are some of the biggest problems of the future. I mean, the energy market is one of the biggest energy is one of the biggest markets in the world. 
There's enormous flows of money that go through the energy markets every day. So this is a, a big opportunity, but it's also a challenging market to come into. So we actually came at the Energy Accelerator with the um, mission to specifically work with energy companies that are solving these really hard problems. So you kind of uh, customized, I mean, in terms of the mentors that came in during that week of intense sort of business plan development, where, where were some of those resources from? So we brought in a, a number of folks from Silicon Valley. It just it turns out that a lot of the people who have successfully grown and exited or sold energy companies, um, a lot of the legal talent around uh, energy, both on the intellectual property and on the corporate side and mm-hmm. regulatory side, is in Silicon Valley. Um, but there are also Hawaii-based resources and Asia-Pacific resources that we bring to bear also. So um, it's, it's really a, a partnered effort. And then I would also just emphasize that it's largely about getting the, the support of this community. Because for Hawaii to be a really good place to test energy technologies, we have to have a utility that's willing to play. You have to have hotels and large landowners and customers all across the islands Mm -hmm. that are willing to take some risk to work with innovation companies that may help solve problems and use this as a as a way to really prove that technology works and the business model is viable. So it's absolutely a community effort. And we draw on everybody across every island. If you look at our portfolio of projects, I mean, they're uh, across Kauai, the Big Island, Maui, um, this island. We even have a project on Lanai looking at different ways to test and bring technology to market. Well, that's great. So your your challenge, I guess, one of the things that you may, may do on a day-to-day basis is really work with some of these other stakeholders to see if they would be willing participants in you know helping to, let's say, take on a, a project and, and have it incorporated into a pilot at their at their facility. Absolutely. So we really provide three things. One is non-dilutive funding. So our we provide funding for up to $100,000 for seed stage startups and up to a million dollars for a little bit later stage startups, which we call growth stage startups. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we have the applications open now until September 27th. We provide, the second thing we provide is strategic relationships. And that's exactly like these folks in the ecosystem. We can understand what those people need, whether it's the utility or hotels or different kinds of customers, and help companies shortcut the process to find those strategic relationships in terms of early test customers and pilots. And the third thing that we're really working to build is this vibrant ecosystem around entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. where we have a talent pool that's responsive. We have people who really want to see entrepreneurs succeed, and that's the only way we're really going to get there. Well, with that, I, I don't see why your door isn't being pounded down with, uh, <laughs> with a slew of uh, startups. Uh, we want to um, welcome uh, Michael from Waikiki to Bite Marsh Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question, and uh, it, it follows on the heels of your uh, uh, Lanai comment. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, everyone uh, down there is aware that they're having a, a so-called big win, and that will involve an undersea transmission cable. Uh, it's my understanding, and uh, I started uh, researching this back during the Carter administration uh, on the Public Utility Regulated Policy Act, but the, um, it's my understanding uh, at the time that a power transmission cable has never been successfully deployed at the sort of depth that would be required to run from Lanai to a uh, major market over here. That's Oahu. Could, could someone comment on that and maybe set me straight? Excellent question. We do talk quite a bit about the uh, underwater power generating or generation transmission cable project. Um, Don, you might have gone deep enough into the weeds to be <laughs> able to answer that. 
Well, I haven't gotten too deep into the weeds on this one. We are – one of the things that we do at the Energy Accelerator, our whole team, uh, led by Maurice Kaya and myself, we are involved at the policy level around energy in, in the state. And that's an incredibly important nexus for innovation companies to sort of understand what's going on at the policy level and what's coming down the pike. So we have done uh, some work related to state energy planning, which includes um, – you know, looking at the undersea cable and specifically on the technical issue of whether cables have been built at that depth. Uh, they have, and there are details in the Oahu Wind Integration Transmission Study. It's called OWITS. Um, so there are some different studies that groups here have done uh, specifically around this issue. Uh, that depth, the one from on the channel from Oahu to Lanai and Maui, is a depth that has been done. Um, and there are cables around the world that are comparable depth. The one that's right on the edge in terms of um, cur- current standard of technology, uh, from what I understand and from what this study says, is the one uh, that would go to the Big Island. Mm-hmm. So that one would be... Uh, a little a, trickier. Have perhaps um, be a little bit more at the edge of, of technology. But there are you know, a lot of studies and a lot of um, sec- technical scientific work that's gone into this. That's an excellent question, though, for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's something that we've... Uh, uh, been trying to follow, and of course, the the folks that have been much more close to it uh, are are the folks over at DBID, and uh, you know, so they've been looking at it. And uh, of course, we, you know, it'd probably be a good idea to have them on the show sometime and give us an update. Sure. Now, Leo, um, now that you've gone through the accelerator, I'm curious uh, what your next step is. Where are you headed now that you've completed this program? Yeah, our our next steps are. Um, uh, right now, we're very active in, in a couple of projects that we're looking at on different islands. And, um, you know, one of the, the first phases of our project and, and the nice things about our technology is we can adapt it to the various ap- applications that's needed. So um, right now, we are looking at uh, a pair of projects in Hawaii. And I'm really looking forward to what's to happen um, outside of Hawaii. I'm based upon some of the discussions we've been having um, you know, Hawaii has been a, a wonderful place to, to launch our technology. And, um, you know, the world is looking at us, and the world is looking at Hawaii to, to see how we're going to solve problems and, and come up with innovative solutions to, to these challenges. So, um, you know, we're moving ahead with our projects in Hawaii um, for SkyGrid. Um, but what's also exciting is um, what's beyond Hawaii as well for us. And so we just are really grateful for being able to launch and, and start here. Well, that's that's great, and and um, you know, I think uh, graduating from the the energy accelerator and uh, going to the next step. I mean, Michael, what do you have in mind in terms of? Is there a little bit of graduation remorse, and you know, you want to <laughs> go back to the cohort, or you know, are you seeing new new challenges that uh, you're faced with, and and you're ready to go out there and 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 win the battle? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, we, we named our cohort the Wolf Pack because we really are like a family. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time together, and uh, I, I think we all continue to help each other, uh, both the companies and everyone uh, at the Accelerator. Uh, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to receive some funding from uh, going through the Accelerator program. That's enabled us to take the next step uh, and get actually get um, large socket systems deployed here in the islands. We're, we're launching that effort in October. Uh, we just did our first manufacturing round with a, a manufacturing company out of uh, Fremont, California, Sonic, so uh, American-made, which is always, I think, a good thing in this day and age. Uh, and we're going to launch uh, that effort, as I say, in October, get a 1,000 sockets out uh, to do some additional testing with our new software platform. 
Uh, and then we will be looking to launch large-scale commercial applications probably in the first quarter uh, of the new mm-hmm. year, uh, primarily in Hawaii. Uh, I really see, uh, at least in our case, we have the opportunity to build out a large installation base in Hawaii over the next 18, 24 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a small installation in California that's kind of a, t- a test installation. We are looking primarily at uh, our graduation is West Coast, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, perhaps Australia, South Korea, and uh, the Pacific Rim. So part of Pictor's, uh, you know, focus is really the Pacific region, Asia Pacific, and uh, we've had a lot of interest there. So uh, our great goal is, you know, nail Hawaii, learn as much as we can, get the scale here, help Hawaii start to wean itself off of uh, energy dependency, and then expand uh, outwards. Now you said that this uh, this um, first large installation is that one that is going to be deployed in a property here in Hawaii, or is that somewhere? Else? It would be it'd be multiple installations here in Hawaii. So we we've got five vertical markets that we really look at: hotels, um, high schools and colleges, mm-hmm. the military, and state and federal buildings, and then private enterprise. So we've identified a number of opportunities in those sectors. Uh, with people who have tested our small-scale systems and who are now ready to say, okay, let's put a larger system in, uh, really learn how much energy we can save, what kinds of things we can turn on and off. And we'll be doing that over the next few months, probably across three or four verticals. Uh, and then, as I say, hopefully on the on the next round, uh, we'll be able to start deploying large-scale, you know, 500 or 1,000 socket systems. Mm-hmm. I love the big thinking and the, the reaching beyond our shores, certainly, that these graduates uh, are heading toward. Don, is, but you have the Wolf Pack. They were very close-knit. They kind of miss coming back. Is there an alumni program? I mean, will there be participants from the first cohort joining in some of the interactions for the upcoming one? Definitely. Like I said, this is an ecosystem, and we're building a community. So this first cohort is like our anchor piece of the cohort. Um, so they may graduate, but they never really graduate, right? We're all still... You're going to tap them whenever exactly. you need expertise. Yeah, and whenever we can help them. And we continue to get a lot of interest from investors, from corporate strategics, from partners. And we continue to just feed those opportunities to our accelerator companies. And that's what we're here for, to just be a, a central place where those folks can come to see what the newest in innovation is, what we think are good deals, and we can just pass those right along to our companies. Sounds, so Sounds great. And well, so, are you going to yeah. be able to pass on our the new website? Very soon we will. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I will mention, though, that we will share updates from all of the companies. Um, Continue to share updates on our our Twitter feed also, which is at energy underscore Excel, which is spelled E-X-C-E-L. And so we'll continue to pass on updates from Ibis Networks, from Gen X, and from our other portfolio companies. Um, So far, they've raised a follow-on funding over $38 million, and we continue Mm. to just see you know, more and more traction for these companies in the market. So you well, can follow them on our website, which is energyaccelerator.com okay. and on our Twitter feed. Good. Fantastic. We'll be definitely putting that on our show notes. Michael Pfeffer from IBIS Networks and Leo Kyris from GenX Energy Developers. And of course, Don Lippert heads up the Energy Accelerator program at Pictor. And you all should be getting in touch with them to get your ex- accelerator started up. And uh, of course, we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we'll get an insider's view of creating meals for trips to Mars. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, any comments 
or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at ByteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Craft Spells and a song called Party Talk. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.